This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki in New Plymouth, thanks to New Zealand On Air. For more local content, search for accessradiotaranaki.com. Welcome to another roundup of Never Rides the Boundaries coming to you from Access Radio Taranaki, Coast Access Radio, Radio Hawks Bay, Arrow Radio Masterton. And I'm Never Wallace broadcasting from Hara. It's only about 53 days until Christmas. For you today, I have Jim Hopkins with his take on the many new regulations that affects the way the Kiwi people go about their everyday lives. Then Barbara Kuriger joins us with her thoughts on several farming matters. Finally, Philip Duncan joins us to discuss aspects of the weather and at the end of the show we'll play a number from the 50s great rock and roller Jerry Lee Lewis who passed away at the grand old age of 87. Well, Jim Hopkins goes first today as a myriad of issues that will have a huge influence on the way we live our lives here in New Zealand. It's time to head to Amaru, steampunk capital of New Zealand. Good morning, Jim Hopkins. How are you, Nev? How's things up in the uh, in the green, the gorgeous, natty, wacky, wacky, natty? It was a very warm <laughs> night, and it rained, and the steam coming off the ground, and the grass is croaking as it comes through further. Now, down your way. Oh, poetic, poetic, Nev. Oh, poetic. I can do it if I think. Local fed farmers had a very supportive meeting with many farmers over unworkable regulations, unworkable emissions. What did you oh, make of it all, Jim? Well, look, I, frankly, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled that fed farmers have decided to become a fighting force at last. And they're basically saying to the government, naff off. We're not putting up with this. We're going to fight it. We, um, it you know, your, your winter grazing rules are stupid, dumb, and, and the fact that you persisted with them is an insult. And it is. Uh, <clears throat> you know, again, a classic, this is a government that's turned its ears off. It doesn't listen. <laughs> You know, David Parker decides that winter grazing is, you know, he's got the solution and, you know, tough titty on anyone and everybody else who dares to suggest that it might not be perfect, wonderful, brilliant and uh, and the equivalent of the Ten Commandments. So, I mean, I'm really pleased to see fed farmers uh, actually, as I say, um, pushing back hard. And I think they're picking up on a huge amount of frustration in farming especially with this um, decision to include New Zealand farmers or impose an emissions tax on New Zealand farmers. First in the world, you know, and James Shaw will be going over to, uh, was it Egypt? Um, I don't know whether he's sailing over or, <laughs> or going in a hydrogen balloon. He couldn't possibly be flying, could he? I mean, wouldn't that leave a carbon footprint and wouldn't that be sort of counterproductive and, wouldn't icebergs melt and, and penguins start gasping for air? Oh, no, wait a minute. James is important, so he's allowed to do that, and, and, and his emissions don't count because we just tax ordinary people more to make up for, the, make up for his vital and essential yeah. travel. But, but oh, he, he yeah. wants to pay for another couple of acres of forest, which... I deplore because we've got oh, millions of hectares of native forest, which must must mean something, Jim. Neville, it means it means New Zealand is poorer. It means, according to Beef and Lamb this week or last week, 
They said on Wednesday or Thursday, they said that the amount of land that has been taken from productive pastoral farming and turned into carbon forestry equals a $700 million loss of overseas income. Right now, I mean, it's not, it's not exactly $700 million, but it's definitely a figure in that, in that amount. So we are losing money overseas in order to essentially allow polluting corporates overseas to buy land here and continue to pollute. Uh, so we're closing schools, ruining farms, shrinking communities, um, and the government could fix it to yesterday. It could say no more. That's it. We're changing. It won't happen. As of now, this is off the table. Um, uh, I mean, all they would have to do is actually include shelter belts that are less than 30 wide. All the things farmers are asking for at the moment, the need to have... Um, uh, carbon forests would be significantly reduced. <laughs> Won't happen, of course, but um, partly, I think, because um, uh, I think there's some politics going on inside the Labour Party. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I think they're dragging the chain because there are people in Labour who see, uh, and maybe the Greens as well, who continue to see benefits in having carbon forests. And I just think they're pernicious wrong, and they're costing New Zealanders money. Uh, according to Beef and Lamb, 700 million, basically. Now, not good, Neville, not good. No, no, it's not good, and they recognise trees in a square, but not in a long line of the same area, but that's there for them to work out. Now, getting back to fair pay agreements, now this yes. agreement takes me back to the days of Muldoon oh. in the 70s when oh, ten, yes. there's 10% oh. of the tail wagged and 90% or is this a co-governance under trial? Well, well, it, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, a financial or wage or industrial equivalent of co-governance in the sense that the minority gets to rule the roost and control things and decide what's going to happen. But that seems to be a penchant for the well, government. This government seems to have a penchant for that. Um, occasionally back, I remember doing interviews um, when I was in current affairs, interviewing Blue Kennedy, who was uh, president of the Meat Workers Union, when Muldoon, do you remember the year Muldoon, this was shortly before he introduced the wage price freeze, decided to top up freezing workers' wages with, it, with money from taxpayers, do you remember that? Oh yes, and it had a sting in its tail, didn't it, Jim? Pardon? It had a sting in his tail and he said, yeah, but they didn't work out that they got into a higher tax bracket and I got a lot of it back. <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, this, this is, in my view, as stupid as that. Um, it's wrong. It's essentially, uh, you know, um, award, award bargaining back on the table. It means whole industries, I would have thought, are going to essentially have wages set nationally, um, which is... Uh, <laughs> Which is just inappropriate, given that different communities have different cost structures and different benefits and different problems and different issues. Oh, don't get me started. Anyway, um, yeah, no, I, uh, it'll be very interesting to see who's first cab off the fair pay rank, because I think, um, depending on who it is and how it plays out, um, it could be quite a potentially significant election issue next year. Now, Jim, how do you envisage the idea of educating 16-year-olds to behave around a local council debating chamber when uh, really they don't know what they're talking about? Oh, look, 
I'm sorry, this Future for Local Government report, I'm afraid the people who have been hired to do it, in my view, are generally speaking doing the government's bidding, not ours. They've imposed, they're making some stupid, like they've said, STV for every council in the country. So, yeah, why not? You've got low voter levels, uh, levels of voter engagement now. Let's have a ludicrous, complicated system that's going to make them even lower. And, and you know, 16-year-olds, it's just, it's just a centre-left. Uh, sorry, the left want the young 16-year-olds because they think they'll all be radical and vote for green policies and saving the whales and so on. Um, but here's a fact. Parliament, when it introduced... Um, the current generation of councils said that rates are not a tax, and that's why they don't. They, uh, that's why they stack whack GST on them. Parliament has said they are a charge for services. Well, what services is a 16-year-old accessing that aren't actually being paid for by their parents or by somebody else? In my view, the only 16-year-olds who should be entitled to vote in a local body election are, are those who have a job and are paying taxes and maybe rents and rates and so on. But, I mean, I don't actually believe even then because we keep on hearing that people brains at 16 haven't formed yet and, you know, it's still a kind of a, uh, a work in progress and all the rest of it. So, uh, no, no, but, but oh, it'll, satisfy the, it'll satisfy the Green Party members on the Wellington City Council. It looks to me as though that's, you know, basically between the Wellington City Council and the, and the government, this, this, this group of people who have produced this report have just, you know, are, are doing... Um, imposing a whole series of unpalatable political solutions. And the really frustrating thing about this is um, this future for local government, it was Nanaya Mahuja commissioned it because she imposed three waters and it just ripped the guts out of a lot of what council does, that councils do anyway. And, and the people who are going to decide what gets done and what changes happen won't be us. Councils won't get a vote on this. Councils won't be able to say, we want this and we don't want that. Well, we say that, the government will say, yeah, 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 we've decided whatever we've decided. So it's the government's report, the government will decide, and you can guarantee that they will choose the things that are politically palatable for them and won't actually, in my view, work in the best interest of rural and provincial New Zealand. Jim, so we need to fight, Nev. We Jim, need to gird our loins and get ready for the battle. Quickly, I've got a minute left. Does New Zealand need to upgrade our Air Force after the PM was marooned on the ice or is New Zealand established? Vintage Aircraft Club, and I don't think the PM wanted to audition for Frozen. <laughs> I mean, if the, if the RNZAF had been running the Battle of Britain, they'd have had to ring Herman Goring and say, Look, Goring, I'm saying, Sorry, we've got this other change are broken. Can you just hold off for a bit? Hercules breaks down going down to the ice and breaks down coming back. And it, was it, who was it? Was it an Italian or a Spanish? Aeroplane that, that whizzed just in the home, I, I can't it remember. Was an, it was... I think it was an Italian one, yeah. <laughs> All for the sake of a few penguins. Well done, and I thank mean, you, Mr Hopkins. We'll let you get away to that vital council meeting you're doing today. <laughs> you have a good day, pal. We'll talk again soon. Well, good morning, Barbara Kruger, and you do not sound the best. Well, good morning, Neville. I'm not quite sure um, what I'm going to sound like, how long my voice is going to last. And uh, I haven't been like this for probably two or three years, and I think what it is is um, just talking to a lot of people last night 
uh, at an event that I went to. And, um, you know, sometimes you're talking over a bit of loud noise. And I guess over the last couple of years, we haven't had too many situations where I've had to do that. So um, talking to you today, I'm hoping that I can get through and that you can all hear me okay. Because uh, I don't sound... I feel, I feel really good, but I don't sound great. So um, now, just in the course of this week, um, there's a couple of things that have happened uh, that I uh, just want to talk about this morning, and I'll just sip on my cup of tea for a second. There we go. Um, there's a big, big turnout in Southland uh, to a federated farmers meeting. Um, and I know that there's been some quite big turnouts uh, around the rest of the country as well. Um, it is a reaction to all of the rules and regulations and things that are being rained on farmers. But on top of this, um, the industry sector put together a plan called Haywaki Economic, which is about measuring methane emissions and measuring uh, sequestration and uh, trying to get a, a system that will measure and monitor and collect levies to put money back into research. And the plan had gone to the government, and when it came back from the government, the government changed it quite substantially. And so if people see farmers making a lot of noise, and I have seen ground spell out on their tractors recently as well, it is because... You know, the, the trend was going in a certain direction and now it's just substantially changed and people can't see um, how it's going to work without planting excess pine trees and a lot of sheep and beef farmers actually leaving the land. So um, that's what... Oh, excuse me, that's what the noise is about. The other thing that uh, people are talking a lot about at the moment is that yesterday... Uh, a local government report was released uh, and there's a few things in there that wind people up a bit but one of them, uh, and it's not only specifically related to this but it's related to quite a few things is uh, lowering the voting age to 16 uh, because local government elections have very low turnouts and there's this perception that they can lift the turnout by lowering the age and getting uh, another two, year age, two years of age group to vote. Now, um, that's something that I'm not in favour of. Uh, and the reason I'm not in favour of it because a lot of them are still at school and school's valuable. Uh, although at the moment, um, only about 46% of students are going to school on a regular basis, which we call nine days, nine school days out of 10. But what I've actually found is it's very easy to be idealistic at 16 because you've had no experience of how the world works. And I give an example of, um, and we all need to do some things for the climate, but if you actually talk to young people, they have no idea that everything we possess or we own or we do is either growing on the ground, in the ground, or dug from the ground. And so there's a lot of idealistic views about electric cars, and yes, they give off less emissions, but the components of those cars are either produced from something that is grown on the ground or under the ground or dug for, and so the actual making of an electric car is not climate emission-free. And the other thing is, 
they all walk into the climate change um, protest with their mobile phones and they don't know where the components of their mobile phones come from. Some of them fly there. Some of them get driven there if they don't have their own driver's licence. And, um, you know, I actually think there needs to be a greater understanding of how the world works uh, before people are put in a position where they're able to make some of those decisions. And I'm not being critical of young people, but I wouldn't have known at 16 uh, anywhere near the things that I know now and have had the experiences that I've had. And so I think it's really important that we think this one through very carefully as a country. Um, let kids be kids, they're young, they're teenagers, uh, they are young adults in some respect, but um, in my view, there's still too much to learn. So at that level, I'm going to leave it there, have another sip of my cup of tea, and uh, those are my thoughts for the week. Thank you. Well, well done. Thank you, Barbara, and I really appreciate your effort of doing that under vocal strain, which I've experienced myself, so thank you, Barbara. Let's catch up with Philip Duncan from weatherwatch.co.nz and listen as Philip tells us about the fact that the Weather Watch is the most popular private weather forecasting outlet. Well, despite politics, the sun will rise and set, and with me to talk weather is Philip Duncan from weatherwatch.co.nz. Good morning, Philip. Good morning, Neville. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, but before we go any further, hey, congratulations on the mention of being in the top weather producer forecasters anyway. Yes, thank you. Yeah, appreciate that. It was a... A bit of a surprise to us, the Nielsen ratings and WeatherWatch is the uh, most preferred private forecaster in the country and uh, rural weather was definitely the most preferred um, weather site for farmers to go to. So really, really stoked to have um, the rural rural sector in particular really supporting what we're doing. Um, I have all the time in the world for people who live in the towns and cities as well. I'm an Aucklander after all, but... Um, but the people that, that usually rely on it the most are in the rural sector or life, lifestyle, you know, blockers and um, growers and, and dairy farmers and sheep farmers. So, you know, we're getting some really good feedback on what we've done with rural weather. So those Nielsen ratings were just a lovely little surprise. Now, before we discuss one or two other items, Philip, what's the uh, outlook for, well, there's only going to be a day or two, well, when this one goes to air, it's going to go on the... Uh, 2nd of uh, November, so we will be in November. But what's what's the forecast for these few days anyway, Philip? So we're, we're in a transition now where after the last three months, we've had a lot of cold southerlies in New Zealand. Um, overall, I still think this month will be warmer than average, and a lot of people won't agree with me on that, so we'll have to wait and see until next week to see what the official numbers are. But um, we've had pretty mild nights for this time of the year. Daytime temperatures haven't been too flash, but the end of October is going to change that. We're going to see a lot of eastern areas and southern areas finally getting the warmth as these nor'westers really kick in. And then we get into November, and... You know, as we saw at the start of August and the start of September and the start of October, New Zealand had really wintry outbreaks at the very beginning. We had big frosts and we had snow in both main islands. Well, this next new month, 
that big southerly blast is actually going to happen in Australia. We're not getting it to begin with. New Zealand's going to kick off quite settled for November, uh, relatively speaking, whereas over in Australia, they've got a major wintry southerly coming in. So this weather pattern of these big southerlies once a month have been around since the end of winter. They're still around now. But this coming month, November, they're going to be more likely in Australia to begin with. So just a bit of a change. Australia's having some very rough weather, especially Victoria, Tasmania, New South Wales, even South Australia, that southeastern corner really being hammered. And we're, we're on the edge of that. And so probably we'll feel the effects of it a wee bit with rain on the west coast. You'll notice that as far north as Taranaki and yep. Waikato and Auckland. But apart from that, uh, most of the stormy stuff looks to be more over on the Aussie side. Oh, yes. And now the other thing, talking Aussie, uh, when I opened up your YouTube presentation, you commented on about the number or amount of lightning strikes. And I looked at that lightning strikes and I thought of all the methane that we're supposed to have in the air. Now, methane's a very ignitable gas, isn't it? So wouldn't that lightning get rid of that, Philip? <laughs> You'd think it all just explode, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not quite sure how it disperses into the atmosphere, but it's, um, I mean, certainly the, the thunderstorms Australia's been having lately are quite, are quite through the roof. It is their season for them. They do get thunderstorms far more than New Zealand does because they're further north and they, it's just a warmer climate with a good mixture of tropical and dry and polar changes as well. So they have a good recipe for thunderstorms all year round, but especially in spring. But they've had a lot lately. And the interesting thing is, despite La Nina being in, in power at the moment and peaking very soon, not getting a lot of news out of Queensland. Their weather is not that dramatic at the moment other than those thunderstorms they just had. The bulk of the rain and the wind and the storms are down at the southern end, the southeastern corner closest to New Zealand. Um, you know, that, 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 uh, Tasmania, Victoria sort of side is where they're getting the bulk of those storms. Not so much in the thunder, but more in the form of rain. And so the Murray River, which is the main river that comes out of the Yarras and out towards, um, the, near Adelaide, is is having all sorts of problems. And it's a very, for those who don't know it, and I've never actually been to it, but I've seen it on Flight Simulator, which is a, a really good way of actually looking at the geography of the world. It's a very flat river. So there's not much room for it to, to, to flood before it floods over into the, into the fields and the crops. So the Murray River is a bit different to the Waikato River, for example, which is in a deep valley. Um, the Murray River is not. And so they, they're having a lot of problems with that at the moment around a number of areas. Yeah, because when we, we actually had a trip on the Murray River and it was very informative, but the thing that gathered stuck to my imagination was the fact that it only had a metre fall from away up down to the coast. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It, it is a... I, I, in my head, imagined it was a lot like the Waikato River. I thought it was this big river. It sort of carved its way through the, through the flats of the Waikato and it's built this, you know, decent sort of permanent river. But then you go across it, you look at a Google Earth, and you realise it is very flat, meandering, reverses back on itself many, many times, cuts itself off many, many times. And so it's a, it's a, it's a river that has very little margin you know, of error. It doesn't take a lot of rain for it to actually come up and over. It's a little bit like, um, not quite the same, but it's a little bit like the rivers like the Rakaia River and those sorts of ones. Yeah. I mean, they're braided rivers, so it's not, not the same. But in the sense that the braided rivers of Canterbury are very flat and a bit like a fire hose, when they flood, they can start moving around and swishing around left and right. 
And, and the Murray River does that. You can very clearly see that from Google Earth, that, it, that it's a river that changes direction a lot of times when it floods. And so nowadays with, with you know, humans having machinery to sort of keep things as it is, probably doesn't change course too much. But, yeah, you're right. There's a very, very little difference between the long way inland and the coast, and it drops almost nothing. So it doesn't take a lot for it to flood. And also I know from speaking to locals who live in Adelaide that the mouth of the Murray River has problems as well. It's very, very narrow, and they're always having problems with that blocking up and yeah, it's just not at all what you would imagine, you know, a big river to sort of be like, I think. It's, we sort of imagine it to be more like the Mississippi River or the Waikato River, where it punches out quite strongly, but this one doesn't. Right. Oh, well, that's a great and very interesting update. So thank you, Philip Duncan, for that. And we'll catch up with you again next week. And listeners, I look forward go to, to YouTube and catch up with Philip's forecast there. Thank you, Philip. Thank you, Neville. Much appreciated. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. But as a tribute to rock and roller artist Jerry Lee Lewis, who really could tickle those ivories, let's listen to a whole lot of shaking going on. But I'll be back next week with more news from the regions, thanks to my producers Evie and Anne. Kakiti and all. Come on over, baby, whole lot of shaking going on. Yes, I say, come on over, baby.
This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to www.accessradiotaranaki.com.